Welcome back to the Locked On Marlins podcast. Hope everybody enjoyed part one of this two-part MLB draft series. This is going to be talking more about the middle rounds for the Marlins. I guess there are no middle rounds now that the MLB just announced as I'm recording this that the amateur draft will just be five rounds. And then it's going to be a free-for-all for undrafted free agents with a maximum spending amount on each contract that those details need to be ironed out still. The previous episode was just focusing on who the Marlins should take with the third overall pick in the draft. This, I'm going to be throwing a lot of names at you about players that the Marlins can take with that 40th pick, the 62nd pick, or now rounds three through five. That's going to be very interesting to see what the Marlins are going to do because this is a very unique situation. It's pretty much unprecedented and it's the pressure's on for the Marlins to make these picks hit because and every team to make these picks hit because you don't have a chance to bail yourself out. You know, sometimes you don't do well in the second round, but you make up for it in the sixth, seventh, eighth round with a guy that overachieves. You see it happen every year. And now it's kind of a free-for-all for the undrafted free agent, so there's no guarantee that you're going to be able to get some of those diamonds in the rough that you liked that you thought you could maybe snatch up in later rounds because other teams are going to be on those guys too. And if everybody's only able to offer these players the same amount, then the players are going to have their choice, and you're just going to have to hope that your team is their choice. On the side of the players, I really feel for these kids because this is something that's supposed to be so special. And now 35 rounds of kids will not hear their name called on draft day. Whether you're drafted in the sixth round or the 36th round, there's nothing like getting your name called from what everybody that's been drafted has told me. So you really feel for the kids in that regard. And then money-wise, right? This is already a huge problem in professional baseball. These minor leaguers don't make any money. They barely make ends meet. Most of them that are drafted high are living off of their signing bonus because $1,200 a month or whatever they make, most of them make less than minimum wage, doesn't make ends meet for them. I wrote a story earlier about a year ago now, geez, time flies, about Jack Oboski, who's in the Tampa Bay Rays organization, and he freaking converted a school bus into an RV so that he could save money on rent because he crunched the numbers, and by the time he paid off his student loans at Duke, because guess what? College baseball players don't get a full scholarship. He would not be able to pay for all of his food, pay for rent, and all of these other things. So he bought that school bus for $2,000 and with his own hands turned it into an RV. A really cool story. Google how Jack Lebowski rolls if you want to check it out. I was not planning on plugging that story in, but as I go down this rabbit hole of frustration, of course, all of America is hurting right now with everything that's going. A lot of people are out of work and I feel for them. But on the sports side of things, just because that's what we're talking about today, This has already been a problem. I mean, most of these guys barely make minimum wage, if that. And so now you can't live off this signing bonus because guys that were drafted in the 6th, 7th, 8th round, or that were supposed to be drafted then, and could have gotten overslot as juniors, are not going to be able to make more than $20,000 if they're not drafted in the first five rounds. Very wild. Unless something changes, that's what I'm hearing it'll be for now. Hopefully, they give they come up with a different system than that because that's going to hurt these players big time, and it's going to make things a lot more difficult. But you have to understand both sides of it because the MLB is also losing out on a lot of revenue going on, and just everybody, like I said, everybody is hurting right now. So back onto the prospects and guys that the Marlins can take. Like I said, the pressure's on. You need to hit on these six picks, and you need to make sure you get the guys you want, even if you have to reach, because, like I said, all bets are off 
when you get to the undrafted free agency area of things. Fortunately, but unfortunately, given the circumstances, this is one of the deepest college baseball drafts I've seen in a long time. Only one other time since 2000 have the top five picks all been college baseball players, and there is a very good chance that that happens this year with the first five picks in this draft. I'd actually be surprised if it doesn't happen this season. So I'm going to talk about who I like the Marlins to take at 40, of course, 62. They also pick number 76, 104, 134, and 163. They have six picks in this draft, and there are guys that I think they can get in all of these spots. Some of them may not fall to 40. I'm hoping they do, but some of them will all be there and maybe would even be a reach at six. There's some diamonds in the rough that I like as well. So I'm going to start with one of the first guys. I saw a lot of these players in the Cape day in and day out, and some of them really stood out to me. One guy that I am really high on that I think has not even touched nearly his potential is Jordan Westberg, shortstop from Mississippi State. He should be there at 40. There's no very slim chance he's going to be there at 62, but he's a six foot three, 190 pound shortstop. He is pretty athletic. He was cut from Team USA this summer. What does he do? I'm calling the game that he actually makes his debut and he hits two bombs in his Cape Cod League debut. He is known for coming up big on the big stage. He slugged seven RBIs in a College World Series game. That was a record. And many scouts believe that he has 20-plus home run power once he figures out how to tap into it. But he does have a little bit of plate discipline issues, and he still definitely has not totally tapped into his potential, like I said. But he is just scraping the surface of the player that he could be. 2019 was A full season for him, he hit 294, 402 on base percentage, 457 with the slugging percentage, six home runs, 61 driven in. This is against good competition. This is SEC competition. And then in the Cape, really good numbers. This is what was really encouraging to me. I wanted to see him build off of that sophomore year and see how he could do in the Cape. Even better in the Cape, hit 326, 516 slugging percentage, hit four home runs in much less games. 14 driven in. So this is something that has to be very encouraging. You want to see these players hit well with a wood bat. When you talk about raw power, the great test is to see how much these guys are still able to hit the ball with authority with the wood bats. And for me, it looked like Westbrook hit the ball actually harder with the wood bats, though I didn't see him in person with metal, watched him play early this season, but he really just hit the ball really, really darn hard with the wood bat. Every single game I saw him, he is good at hitting the ball to all parts of the field. He is an above average athlete with a shot to stay at shortstop because he has a solid arm. But I do think if he does not stay at shortstop, probably a coin flip just because he's not an elite athlete. He kind of lacks a little bit of those twitchy movements, but he does have a sure-handed glove and a strong arm. If he does have to go to third base, he has the power to stay at the hot corner with many scouts, like I said, seeing 20-plus home run potential in him. I think this guy could be a major steal because of the fact that he has not hit his potential. He was off to a really good start to this season, already had a couple home runs, and if he played a full season this year, I think he would have launched himself into the first round. He still could be a late first-round pick, but he would have been a no-doubt first-round pick 
if he played a full season this year, he was going to build off the cape, just like J.J. Boudet said. J.J. Boudet had one of the biggest jumps in power that we've ever seen in college baseball, right? He hit just a handful of home runs, then hits well over 20 the next year. And when I asked him in an interview, I asked him, you know, what changed for you? How did you go from just a couple home runs to 26, I think it was? He just said the cape. That's all he said. He literally just said, I made adjustments in the Cape. I felt like I saw the just tougher competition. I had to hit with a wood bat. So when I got that metal bat back and I started facing not as tough competition day in and day out, though he did face obviously still good competition in the SEC. It's just in the Cape, you're facing basically every team's ace who they shipped out there unless they're shut down. And he said he grew more in those 40 games in the Cape than he had in his first season or two in college baseball, and it showed. And this is a guy, Jordan Westberg, that I think will do the same thing or would have done the same thing if he played his junior season. So I'm very high on him. I could see a Trevor Story type of comp. Maybe not quite the power, though Trevor Story does benefit from the Coors effect. So you got to take Story's power a little bit with a grain of salt, but he does boast just phenomenal power as a shortstop. And Westberg could be just a tick under that power-wise, but a similar type of producer and athlete at shortstop. Next guy for me is probably my favorite player that the Marlins could get potentially with the 40th pick. I don't even think he's going to fall there. I think he's going to continue to climb up the draft board as we get closer to draft day. It's Daniel Cabrera from LSU, an outfielder, left-handed hitter, six foot one, 190 pounds, a really sweet left-handed swing. I would just watch him take batting practice every single time I got a chance, just watched every single swing he took. He could spray the ball all over the field with no problem. He does the same thing in games, a really nice translation from batting practice to the game, does not change anything, and just a constant producer with the potential to be able to hit for power and average in his 140-game career at LSU. A slash line of 305, 392, 518 with 22 bombs and 116 RBIs. That's in 140 games. Pretty much right on par in the Cape with what he's done in his whole college career. 287 batting average, 369 on base, 400 slugging. Only two home runs and 14 driven in, but I will point out he played in Harwich. And anytime you look at a Harwich player's stats, a power hitter, or just a hitter for that matter. That is probably the most cavernous field in the Cape, one of the hardest to hit a home run in and a lot of space in their outfield. So I'm more encouraged at the fact that he didn't strike out too much. He still was able to maintain the average. And if you look at his spray charts, they are incredible. He sprayed the ball all over the field. He has a mature approach that's going to translate very well to pro ball. I see him going in the mid-20s in this draft, but you never know what can happen. And if he's there at 40, he is my number one guy for the Marlins to take. The reason why I started with Westberg is because I think he's the most likely to be there. If Daniel Cabrera is there at 40 and the Marlins don't take him, I am going to lose my mind. That's how high I am on this guy. He gives me a little bit of a Nick Markakis type of comp with the combination of power and ability to hit for average and uh, average to slightly above average athlete and a sweet left-handed swing about the same size as Marquecas as well. Really like this kid. Solid in the outfield, but will probably stick to a corner. Left field makes the most sense with an average arm, but this is a guy that will hit the ball at every level. I will be astounded. You can put me down for this. 
Daniel Cabrera will be a Major League Baseball player without a doubt in my mind and a good everyday Major League Baseball player at that. So from him, I'm going to move on to a more unsung, less of a heralded prospect, though a lot of teams have been paying attention to him. I still think he'll go in the first five rounds, but the Marlins will have a shot at him at 62 or later. Of course, things change as the draft gets closer, but Xavier Warren is a guy that I am incredibly high on from Central Michigan. Another not huge guy, six foot, 190 pounds, but he is a great athlete, a switch hitter with plus speed, and has been able to hit for a great average at Central Michigan. So Central Michigan, obviously not the best competition. So you're going to take the numbers with a grain of salt, a little bit like the Nick Gonzalez case, but you want to see what he can do in the Cape. First, his numbers from his sophomore season. He hit 363, 498 on base percentage, and a 571 slugging percentage, eight home runs, 22 doubles, and 14 stolen bases. Wanted to see what he could do in the Cape, and he answered the questions in the Cape. Hit 315 with three bombs and played really good defense, sliding all over the infield. Right now, he was actually being used at the beginning of this year. I couldn't believe it when I saw it as a catcher. So I don't know what's going to go on with him. He is definitely a utility player. But I really thought he was a shortstop. I still think he's a shortstop. He's sure-handed. He had one of the best arms that I saw in the Cape League. Saw him play second base, shortstop, and third base. He made some throws from deep in the hole at shortstop, some tough backhands at third, and he was just throwing seeds across the diamond. As for his approach at the plate, a pretty sneaky, powerful gap-to-gap guy that can hit for a few home runs, as you saw eight in his sophomore season. Three in the Cape is not cheap either because I know I just said Harwich is the biggest. Born rivals Harwich is maybe the second biggest park to hit a home run in with a lot of wind and just it's a, one of those weird places, wacky places. And that's where he played last summer with the Born Braves. The fact that he is just able to play so many positions, a switch hitter with above average speed, he fits the Marlins mold of an athletic guy that is versatile. And he also is just a high floor guy, in my opinion. He's always hit for average. He has a lot of speed. At the very least, you're getting yourself a utility player that can probably work his way to the big leagues, even if the hit tool does not keep up. I'm not totally sure how high teams are on this guy because I'm not seeing too much on him, but I do know he is getting a lot of draft consideration. He will come out of Central Michigan this year. I'd be shocked if he doesn't, and he should be picked in those first five rounds, but I don't know how early the Marlins will have to go to take him. I would be very happy with a selection of Xavier Warren right there. After this quick break, I'm going to go into the second half of prospects and then end out with some pitchers that I like for the Marlins to take in these middle rounds. I guess we should call them now because there's no late rounds. Next up for me, might be one of the best power hitters I saw in the Cape. He did not really show his power in college until he got to Cape Cod and really was an impressive showing for a draft-eligible sophomore, and that is Austin Wells out of the University of Arizona. Wells is another interesting case because his bat is a very, very advanced one for a draft-eligible sophomore. He has been able to hit since his freshman year, at Arizona, translated to the Cape in his 71 college games because obviously his sophomore year was cut short. 357, 476, 560 slash line, seven home runs, 74 driven in. And then in the Cape, against mostly older competition, keep in mind as a 
just coming off his freshman season. 42 games in the Cape, hit 308, 389 on base percentage, 526 slugging, and seven home runs in the Cape. So he matched in 42 games with a wood bat, matched his total in 71 games with a metal bat in terms of home runs, drove in 26, and was just a force all summer long. You could see the fear that he instilled in pitchers. He was widely respected throughout the league as one of the best power hitters. I watched him hit three home runs and a single double header and just absolute bombs off of his bat. But in that same double header, I watched him miss a couple routine fly balls in left field, albeit the wind was swirling. But he is a catcher. I realize I didn't even give his position, and that's for a reason. He is a catcher. He has a shot to stay behind the dish. I'm not going to rule him out yet, but if I'm a betting man, I do not see him sticking behind the dish. He's just not quite there defensively, a little bit too big at 6'2", 220 pounds. Not as quick as he should be behind the dish and a little bit inconsistent with his throws. I see him as probably a first baseman, which limits his draft stock a little bit, but he does have about average speed. He could man the outfield if he takes the time to improve out there, but he has the bat that is good enough to carry him at first base, and he has a very mature approach. In his college career, only struck out 16% of the time and walked 18% of the time. In the Cape, his strikeout numbers jumped a little bit, just as anybody's do. A 25% strikeout rate in the Cape, which still is not terrible for a sophomore, actually just an upcoming sophomore in the Cape League, and still kept the walk percentage pretty high at 12%. So the, the mature approach still translated at a higher level in the Cape League. And this is a guy that is only going to get better. Like I said, he's young, draft-eligible sophomore. And even if he doesn't pan out behind the dish, where, of course, with that offensive capability, if he can make strides behind the plate, he is probably an easy first rounder. But teams are a little bit skeptical because they know they might have to stick him at first base. And obviously, no one wants to spend an early pick on a guy limited to first base. I think with the chance that Wells stays at catcher, even though it's slim, paired with the fact that he could play a corner outfield position, he is worth a pick at 40 or of course 62 if there's a pick available there. He's just too good with that bat from the left side to not take a chance on him with your second or third pick in the draft. I don't think he'll be there beyond 40, and he is another option. If Daniel Cabrera and Westberg are not there, that could be a really good high-ceiling bat for the Marlins with a Kyle Schwarber type of path to the majors. Even if it doesn't pan out behind the dish, and even if he's not great in the outfield, his bat will be good enough to make him an everyday regular, though I do think he is more capable in the field than Kyle Schwarber is, though maybe not quite as powerful with the bat. The next guy that I am very, very interested to see where he will go in this draft, and I've actually been pleasantly surprised at the amount of questions I've gotten on Casey Schmidt because I thought he was a little bit of a diamond in the rough. He will definitely be there at 40, probably be there at 62. He might even be there with the Marlins fourth or fifth picks really depends how things go on. He is one of the more unique players in this draft, a guy that played for Katuit. So I watched him day in and day out. Every time I got the chance to interview the Kettleers coach, Mike Roberts, father of, of course, longtime big leaguer, Brian Roberts, there were only two guys that he was unequivocally saying would be big leaguers. Not that he didn't think there were other players that were very capable because there are a lot of guys that will be drafted in these first five rounds from that champion Kettleer team. But 
both Nick Gonzalez and Casey Schmidt, he said, looked me in the eyes and said, I have no doubt those guys are big leaguers. When you look at the surface, Casey Schmidt has never put up off the charts numbers. He has always been very solid at San Diego State. He is a two-way player. He is a pitcher and third baseman. The numbers don't jump off the charts, but again, like I said, very consistent. In 2019, 315, 415, 450 slash line, five home runs, 36 driven in, but he is a tough guy to strike out, a really good approach at the plate, and he just carries himself like a big leaguer. That's what Coach Roberts always said, and watching him day in and day out, I can agree. A plus defender at third base made so many incredible plays at the hot corner, and then as a pitcher that boasts a low to mid-90s fastball, he has a plus-plus arm from the hot corner as well. In terms of his pitching, he had a pretty solid season as the closer for San Diego State in 2019. He struck out 44 and 43 innings, picked up eight saves, kept the ERA right in the mid threes. And in the Cape, he was even better, a 2-4-5 ERA in 22 innings, punched out 26 and picked up three saves. As for offensively in the Cape, I know I'm throwing a lot of numbers at you, but he's a two-way guy. Offensively in the Cape, hit just 248 but he had five home runs, 18 driven in, and was a tough guy to strike out and sat in the middle of the Kettleers' order all summer long behind Nick Gonzalez. So Casey Schmidt, what is he, a pitcher or is he a hitter? Or does he follow the new wave of two-way players? I think two-way players are going to be very rare still with guys like Shohei Otani, Brandon McKay, and other players coming through the ranks. Hunter Green gave up hitting and now is just a pitcher. I think that Casey Schmidt's ceiling is his bat. He is just so mature at the plate, has the potential for 20-plus home run power. He reminds me a lot of Jordan Westberg with his approach, except much more mature with limiting the strikeouts. Maybe not quite the power potential of Westberg, but did hit some bombs in the Cape. A bunch of no-doubters of those five. I would say three or four of them were no-doubters. And again, a guy that can spray it all over the field, but you're getting a plus defender at third base and the bat has just always been consistent for him. The thing about these two-way guys though is if he doesn't pan out as a hitter, you still have a chance at a very solid relief pitcher. Of course, that'd be a worst case scenario, but he has a mid-90s fastball that he locates well and a wipeout splitter that he loves to throw. And just those two pitches alone, it was just a one-two punch for him. He does have some other pitches he mixes in, but those were the only two pitches he needed to use most of the summer. He is going to stay at third base. I don't see him playing anywhere else. He is good enough there to stay at the hot corner, and the arm is good enough as well. I think he could be there in the third round, fourth round, but with his makeup, uh, with his work ethic, like I said, Coach Roberts was a huge fan of his. I don't think he'd admit to picking favorites, but I know Casey Schmidt was right there in his favorites. He was the guy that would seem to always come up with the big hit, and you know he's got the guts because he would always close out these games, whether it was in college or or in the Cape League, he came into every high leverage situation and seemed to always be able to dance out of them. So I see him as a player that will nail these team interviews and these team workouts and win over the front office or whoever interviews him and could end up being one of those close to drafts, sliding up the draft board type of guys as well. But the Marlins should be able to get a chance at him with their third or fourth pick. And that could be a nice little steal there for a guy that I do not think has reached his potential with the bat just yet. Next up is another guy who I don't think has reached his potential yet. And he's the last bat I'm going to go in depth about. And then I'm going to go to some arms that I like. 
This is Hayden Cantrell from Louisiana Lafayette. He's a middle infielder, has the ability to stay at shortstop, but can also play second base very well. He is a really exciting type of player where he makes all the flashy plays at shortstop and second. Sometimes the routine ones are actually the plays that get away from him, but well above average speed. I would say plus speed. He ran a 4-5-40 as a high-end football recruit in high school. He played both quarterback and wide receiver and gave that some thought for college as well, opted to just play baseball, and was drafted in one of the later rounds, opting still to go to Louisiana Lafayette. For him, it seems like he is the type of guy that makes adjustments well and improves. He's not always just hitting the ground running. He struggled a little bit his freshman year of college. He got a little stint as a rising sophomore in the Cape League and struggled mightily, but then returned to Louisiana Lafayette as a sophomore and had a spectacular season, a slash line of 309, 426, 504, some sneaky power as a switch hitter. Oh yeah, I forgot to mention, a switch hitter with nine home runs, 31 runs driven in, and 28 stolen bases. One of just six players in college baseball to have 25 extra base hits and 25 stolen bases. So an elite club there, and it's just an indicator of the types of tools he has with a guy that can play the middle infield, maybe even play the outfield, a switch hitter with plus speed and has shown the ability to adjust and improve as a hitter. You have to like that. Some sneaky power. He's never going to be a guy that's going to hit you more than probably 12 to 15 home runs, but he is a top of the order leadoff hitter with some pop and his swing from the left side is better, which as a switch hitter, I would like to see that. Obviously, you're going to be facing more righties than lefties. And even if your right-handed swing is slightly inferior and you're not quite as good as you are from the left side, it's still probably going to be better than the lefty-lefty splits. So if a guy's going to favor one side, of course, you always want to see a switch hitter be better from the left side. That is the case from Cantrell, but he's still very capable from the right side. Like I said, the range and speed to be able to stay at shortstop. It's just about making those routine plays. Still has a good arm and is a very good athlete. Funny enough, I don't think a Jonathan VR comp would be far off. Maybe not quite the power numbers or power ability, but very similar in their tools and their abilities and what they can do in terms of defense as well. So that is the last bat I'm going to go in depth about. But I do have some other names that are worth consideration, and if you're really bored in this quarantine, worth looking up for you. Parker Chavers, a very unique prospect, because he was looking like a potential early day two guy to late day one guy, but he had some shoulder surgery, did not play this season. Now the season is over, so it's going to be interesting to see how teams feel about that injury, but a very powerful left-handed swing and a very, very good player over there from Coastal Carolina that I would expect to still come out for the draft as a junior, had a good summer in the Cape, had a really good season as a sophomore and freshman, uh, had one of the best freshman season in Coastal Carolina history, actually. So he is just a guy with the pedigree, a guy that has shown he can hit and is above average with his speed, a good arm in the outfield, just needs to work on his routes and cons consistency Excuse me, out there. Another guy is Alaric Solari, an outfielder, really good athlete from Tennessee, Again, power, but consistency is the question. Isaiah Green, the only high schooler I'm going to throw in here, a potential option for the Marlins at four, a prep guy from California. And then University of Miami shortstop, again, another guy who missed the season, Freddie Zamora, 
who busted his knee, I believe it was a torn ACL, to miss the season. He is a guy that was poised for a big season this year, and he could be a nice little buy-low candidate because of his injury. And then finally, Joey Loperfito from Duke, another really interesting prospect that his problem is he doesn't necessarily have a position. Scouts like him as an outfielder, but he has not played too much outfield in his career. He has played a lot of second base and even first base, capable at all of those spots, just needs a true position. But once he finds it, I do think he is athletic enough to make things work in the outfield. And then actually one more. I have so many college bats that I like this year. Like I said, switch hitter, another guy from Duke, Mike Rothenberg, a big catcher, six foot three but was actually in the college baseball home run derby. A switch inning catcher is so valuable, really good behind the dish, a strong arm, well above average arm. And even though he's oversized as a catcher, is good enough behind the dish to stay back there. And another guy that just has not even tapped into his ability, hit 12 home runs as a sophomore, was off to a really hot start this year. And again, a guy that I do think would have shot into the late day one conversation had this whole season been played, another buy low candidate that was hurt by this abbreviated season. So now onto the arms real quick. This episode is obviously a little longer than usual. I was expecting that. So we're going to go into just a few arms. I do like more bats for the Marlins, but it's worth noting that it really depends on what the Marlins do with their first pick. If they go with Asa Lacey with that first pick, I think it's important that they get a pretty high floor bat with the second pick. And that's why I've gotten questions about Blaze Jordan, especially if the Marlins take Asa Lacey with that first pick. I just do not think Blaze Jordan is the right spot. Yes, he has the power potential, but just too many questions with him. He reclassified. He's very young, struggled this summer against some older pitching. I do not think he will do very well in the beginning in pro baseball. Obviously, it's a long time. He's not going to be in the major leagues tomorrow, but it's just a very risky pick. And for the Marlins right now that are looking to compete in a couple years, the guy that they get with this 40th overall pick could fit the timeline as a high-end, quick-moving college bat. So many of the guys I just mentioned could climb through the system very quickly, and I do think it is ideal to draft an infielder if the Marlins go with Asa Lacy. but if one of those outfielders that I really liked was on the board, you got to take him, especially Daniel Cabrera. So real quick, some pitchers that I really like. I'm talking about guys that can be pretty much bought low on that might fall and could be huge steals. One is Bryce Jarvis. You may have heard his name because he threw a perfect game this season, but let me tell you that this guy has been improving since last year, actually since his freshman year. So he was set to play in the Cape last summer after basically helping lead Duke to being one game away from the College World Series. Even his final outing, he picked up one of the most unlucky losses I've ever seen. You probably might not even remember because Kumar Rocker threw a 19 strikeout no hitter, but it wasn't like Bryce Jarvis was a slouch in that outing. He just got overshadowed. He shut down the eventual national champions with a lineup featuring Austin Martin, JJ Bleday, and many other familiar faces, held them to one run in seven innings, struck out nine. In the college world series or postseason, I should say, he pitched 15 innings, struck out 20, and only gave up one run. And then he went to driveline instead of pitching in the Cape over the summer because of how many innings he threw and how many pitches he threw in that push for the College World Series. And all he did at driveline was pick up a few more miles per hour 
on his fastball and improve his slider, even added a curveball. His main go-to out pitch is his changeup. It is a nasty pitch, and that's why he's able to strike out so many hitters. He doesn't have an imposing frame, just 6'2", 195. He used to sit more 87 to 91, but now he's 92 to 94, topping at 96 adding that slider with more bite from driveline, working at driveline, and even now has incorporated a curveball. And like I said, through a perfect game against Cornell with 15 strikeouts in his last 42 innings, dating back to the postseason last year, he struck out 60 and he's only given up three earned runs. That's a 0.64 ERA. And the command is impressive as well. 27 innings, he's only walked two. So this is a guy that is still improving, steadily improving. He's made gains in his velocity. His father pitched for 12 years or 13 years in the big league. So he has the pedigree. He has the bloodlines. This is a player that teams will be kicking themselves for not taking. He is incredibly mature out there on the mound. And I keep saying in this because these are guys that I look for, a guy that will climb through the system quickly. He is advanced and a good changeup will work at any level. Now add that with a plus slider that he has now developed. And of course, now with the extra miles per hour on his fastball, this is a scary pitcher that is being undervalued just because he doesn't throw consistently 96 and have a six foot five frame. But there's more to it than just throwing hard and having a projectable frame. He doesn't even need to throw any harder with the stuff that he has. And a team that does not just sell out on build and projectability will get a steal in Bryce Jarvis. That is another one that I will put my name on. Daniel Cabrera, Bryce Jarvis will both be big leaguers. Remember I said it. Next up, another guy who I really think has the big league makeup as well. A local kid from FIU, Logan Allen. The Southpaw that was drafted actually out of high school turned down $630,000 from the Orioles saying he just was not ready to play pro ball. Smart move for him because he's looking like he's going to make even more money. He has been fantastic at FIU in his career, a 3-3-3 ERA, 183.2 innings. He has struck out 246 and walked just 47. A southpaw, 6'1", 180, again, not an imposing frame, works mostly in the low 90s. But guess what? A trend, another pitcher with a very good changeup. He was really good for Team USA this summer, very good in his outings in the Cape, another advanced pitcher. With the changeup, that is just a pitch that will stifle college hitters, but it still works really well in professional baseball. And you add a third out pitch, which is what Logan Allen is now working on. He will be on a similar track as Bryce Jarvis, who went from very good last year to fantastic this year because of that third pitch that he added. A third plus pitch just makes you virtually unhittable at that level and makes you a very good chance to get to the major leagues. The fastball not imposing at just 91 topping at 93, but I do think there's more to be found there in terms of velocity. The command is still solid with the only 47 walks and 183 innings, but you'd like to see him get a little bit more comfortable with his command of his secondaries, though the changeup, like I said, is still pretty solid and has plus potential, if not well above average already. Then the next pitcher who 
is a little bit different than these guys because he's the classic projectable hard thrower, but it's still good to take a flyer on these guys. He has not shown too much. It's Slade Ciccone. He has shown flashes of what he can be at the University of Miami, another local kid. He is more of a projectable frame, already throws 96 with ease. He does tend to fade later into starts, has not thrown too many innings in college, so still a lot of maturing to do, but a guy that scouts, of course, are going to salivate over with his big body, six foot four, 220 pounds, and already throwing 96, but he still is a little bit of a thrower at this point, meaning the command is not totally there. And unlike Bryce Jarvis and Logan Allen, he does not have a go-to out pitch that he can really count on right now. But like I said, he's a very raw pitcher, but the tools are there and a guy that could really blossom into a very, very productive pitcher. Again, very risky with the lack of maturity on the mound, but a high ceiling type of player that if you can get with your second or third pick, though I don't see him falling beyond 40, too far beyond 40 because of just his high ceiling and projectability, that is a guy you might consider at 40, especially if the Marlins don't take a Salesi at three. Whatever the Marlins do at three is going to have a strong indication, I think, as to what they should do at 40. The thing about taking Asa Lacey at three is there are a lot of potentially good bats, which you've just heard a bunch of guys that I've named that the Marlins can take with their second and third picks. I actually was not even able to get to all of my prospects today that I have for you guys, so it looks like I might be doing another episode down the road with some more college guys because... There are just so many more that I want to touch on and more for you guys to look into. Let me know if these are any prospects that you are high on as well. Let me know which ones you guys like and if there are any more you want me to talk about or that I may have seen in the Cape. I'm always willing to do some digging if I haven't seen them or if I have, I'm always happy to talk about what I saw from this past summer and from all of the college baseball that I have seen over the last about two seasons. So going forward, I'm definitely going to do some more episodes of this, especially as the draft inches closer and there's a bunch more diamonds in the rough, especially that I have in mind for undrafted free agents and or fourth or fifth round picks and other guys that I could see the Marlins taking in the second or third rounds. Again, feel free to tweet me. I know I could not barely touch on all of the potential options for the Marlins with their middle round picks, but there are plenty of guys that I still want to talk about moving forward. I hope you guys enjoyed this long version of the Locked On Marlins podcast, and I'm going to bring a lot more draft content coming your way. Happy what would have been opening day today. We will have opening day soon. Stay positive, everybody.